Israel is fighting with one hand tied behind its back because we are a democratic state with a professional civil service and a professional army and our credibility is everything. We don't enjoy Hamas's advantage of being able to send out lies, have them replicated by billions of gullible or evil people around the world, enjoy no accountability from the international media and enjoy the active complicity of UN institutions. And that's the trifecta of Hamas's propaganda war. A gullible and complicit audience, no accountability from the international media, and complicity from UN institutions. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Since Israel's war against Hamas began following the horrific events of October 7th, one of the singular challenges Israel faces has been explaining its position to the world, or what's called in Hebrew, Hasbara. It's never easy defending Israel in the media, never mind going on the offensive, with a natural skepticism of everything that Israel does, combined with some obvious latent anti-Semitism, Many often portray Israel as seemingly never doing anything right. When that is combined with a common willingness to believe Hamas's narratives, while Israel, as a Western democracy, inevitably checks its facts before reporting them and accordingly often has to respond to an emerging narrative rather than writing it in the first place, the challenges Israel faces become even greater. Fortunately, Israel has some individuals who are expert at telling its story and in playing the Hasbara game, and I'll be speaking to two of them today. Elon Levy has emerged as Israel's most well-known and effective spokesperson over the past two months. His fame skyrocketed about a week and a half ago when he responded expertly and with astonishment when a news presenter asked him whether the fact that three Palestinian prisoners were released for every Israeli hostage somehow indicated that Israel thinks that Israeli lives are more valuable than Palestinian lives. My good friend Rabbi Pesach Walicki has been on this podcast before discussing his work with Christians and Jewish-Christian dialogue, but today he'll be speaking about his new role as one of the leading advocates for Israel in the world of Christian media. Like Elon Levy, Pesach has become one of the leading spokespeople for Israel, and his appearances have largely been on Christian networks like TBN and CBN, watched by millions of viewers. We'll get to those two interviews in a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Last week, I released two new articles, one entitled From Salvation to Partnership, a fictional addendum to Masechet Makot 24b, is a continuation, so to speak, of the famous passage in the Talmud when Rabbi Akiva laughs when seeing a fox emerge from the site of the Holy of Holies. And the second... Dina, the box, and the eternity of Israel, investigates the Midrash that suggests that Jacob hid Dina in a box when he approached his brother Esav, how this incident relates to the spiritual laws of history, and why, even in difficult times, we must never despair. The link is in the description of this podcast, so get your free subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Elon Levy is an Israeli government spokesman. 
He is a former international media advisor to the President of Israel and a former TV news anchor. Born and raised in the UK, he studied at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge before making Aliyah and serving in the IDF. Rabbi Pesach Uliki is an Orthodox rabbi and a leading voice in the world of Jewish-Christian relations. Since the outbreak of the war on October 7th, Rabbi Wolicki has appeared on numerous high-profile shows in major Christian media, explaining Israel's position. These appearances include TBN, CBN, Victory News Network, the American Family Radio Network, the Eric Metaxas Show, and a number of programs on Real America's Voice Network. As a result of the war, Rabbi Wolicki, together with Israel 365, has launched Israel365Action.com, a portal for information and grassroots activism on behalf of Israel. Elon Levy, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Over the past week, your life has changed in dramatic ways. I'm sure it's changed in many ways over the past seven weeks for all of us, but particularly ever since a particular question was posed to, I believe it was on Sky News, which implied that Israel values Israeli lives more than Palestinian lives because we release more Palestinian prisoners than they release Israeli prisoners. We don't have to get into the ridiculousness of that question. I want to ask you as a start, on a personal level, what has your life been like over the past week since that happened and you became effectively a meme for many people? (laughs) Really a bizarre moment that went viral around the world immediately and has had some equally bizarre consequences. Suddenly people are making memes of my face, sending WhatsApp stickers. I'm getting stopped in the street. People want selfies with us raising our eyebrows. This is obviously not why I am doing this job. I am here doing back-to-back TV, radio, podcast interviews to try to explain Israel's case to the world. We are at war. We are fighting for our survival. There is nothing funny about the current situation. And so the fact that Suddenly, I find myself being a WhatsApp sticker in the middle of this gruesome, awful, awful situation is bizarre. Um, But, you know, my job is to explain Israel to the world outside. And if within Israel, within the Jewish world, that happens to give some people comic relief along the way, then the Jewish history teaches us you can either cry or laugh. So if the joke is on me, uh, happy for that to happen. Okay. And one more personal question before we begin talking about Hasbara, which will be the main focus of our conversation. Before October 7th, you were involved in the protests against judicial reform. I don't want to speak about that, but I'm curious what it was like for you to change gears so quickly to protesting the current government, to working immediately alongside it and defending its actions in what's going on in Gaza. Yeah, everyone in this country had opinions, has personal opinions about uh, painful issues that are not on the agenda at the moment. Because when October 7th happened, I'm very proud that Israeli society came together, rose to the challenge, rose to the occasion, and dropped everything in order to work together towards our goal of victory against Hamas. And I really think it's an incredible credit to the Israeli nation that at this pivotal moment in our history, unlike other moments, in Jewish history. We put our Jewish wars aside. We said this isn't relevant. This isn't relevant for now. We're going to stand shoulder to shoulder. We're going to fight our common enemy. There was an Israel before October 7th. There is an Israel after October 7th. There was an Israel before this war. There is going to be an Israel after this war. I hope that when this war is over, we're going to move ahead as a country with the same spirit of Avat Israel. 
and ערבות הדדית, and remember how much we need each other, and love each other, and, and have to work together, and are all in the same boat. Because October 7th, the deadliest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust is a high watermark. It is an inflection point in our history, by far the most fateful date in Jewish history in the 21st century, after which nothing will be the same ever again. Now let's move on to proper Hasbara, explaining Israel's case. And you have become, I believe, Israel's most effective spokesperson, which is something which Israel has needed for a long time, because unfortunately... That's very kind of you. Well, I believe it's true. Often our Hasbara has been lacking, and I think you have changed the game in a serious way. I'm going to give one example to start off with. Our job today is not to explain. I think most of my listeners, if not all, are on the same side as you and I are. At the same time, I want people I to hope know... So. Yes, I want people to know how to respond because the people they speak with are not necessarily on the same side. Let's use the hostages as an example. We're recording this on Wednesday, the day of the hopeful sixth release of hostages, Mm. of another 10 hostages. And one thing which I've seen online is an example of an absurd but catchy type of argument is, oh, look at the hostages. When they are released, they're smiling. They're treating them so well. The hostages have been treated so much better than the Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. I know that that is a bogus argument, but how would you respond to that kind of ridiculous type of statement? Hamas is waging a war of psychological warfare and psychological terrorism against the people of Israel, against the hostages and their families. And you see from those videos of the crowds staged alongside the side of the road, jeering the hostages as they leave, reminding me of that moment from Game of Thrones, that infamous scene, terrorizing them until the last minute. And the reports that are beginning to come out from Hamas captivity are chilling and heartbreaking. Eitan Yahalomi's family saying he was beaten in the streets. He was held for two weeks in solitary confinement. He was forced to watch Hamas snuff videos of the October 7th atrocities and that they threatened children with guns if they cried. We heard poor Thomas Hand, who made shockwaves around the world when he said words that no father should say, that he was happy his little girl had been killed because at least she wouldn't be in Hamas captivity and now she's back. And he says she only speaks in a whisper because she thought she had been captive for a year and that Hamas had had told her that uh, and uh, and terrorized her. Other hostages who were told, the Eliakim girls reportedly told that their families didn't want them back in Israel. I mean, they continued to psychologically terrorize these people while they were in uh, captivity. And, you know, I think there was a remark from Sky News that was even more astonishing than... Kay Burley's remark about the exchange of our innocent hostages for their violent criminals, Sky News' international affairs editor saying that the hostages had been kept in reasonable conditions and that the fact that terrorist mastermind Ihya Sinwar had reportedly visited some of these hostages in captivity undermined Israel's claim uh, of the uh, equivalence between Hamas and ISIS. I mean, it is astonishing and bizarre that terrorist mastermind surprises frightened hostages in dark tunnel somehow fits in some people's heads as meaning Hamas isn't that evil after all. Now, of course, we don't know the full or can't release at least the full extent of what these people went through, because while we're doing everything we can to unite families, Hamas is doing everything it can to tear them apart 
not returning mothers and children together, holding back fathers inside the Gaza Strip, and continuing to terrorize these people. And, and it's important that we remind people that the hostages who are returning home, this is not the end of a trauma. This is just the one milestone in the middle of an ongoing crisis, the middle of an ongoing trauma, before we can even begin to talk about rehabilitation and some sense of healing for these people. Okay, well, that raises a loan a question in general about what to do when the narrative has already been set, even if that narrative is false. In this situation, when I mention hostages, I hope that it's a reasonable thing for reasonable people who may be in short supply today to understand that no matter how they treated a hostage, obviously being a hostage is inherently a bad thing. But let's take other narratives that have developed. I'll use the example of the Baptist hospital about a month ago that was bombed by Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But the narrative dropped immediately that Israel had bombed a hospital. 500 people were killed. That was entirely false. It was not 500 people. It was not a hospital. It was a parking lot. And it wasn't Israel. But the narrative was set. And currently, even after all the investigations have shown that, there are millions of people across the world who always will believe that Israel bombed a hospital. How do you affect a narrative that has already taken shape when Israel, because of its honesty, refuses to go in and immediately deny something until they do an investigation, which was the case in something like that? Israel is fighting with one hand tied behind its back because we are a democratic state with a professional civil service and a professional army and our credibility is everything. We don't enjoy Hamas's advantage of being able to send out lies, have them replicated by billions of gullible or evil people around the world enjoy no accountability from the international media and enjoy the active complicity of UN institutions. And that's the trifecta of Hamas's propaganda war. A gullible and complicit audience, no accountability from the international media and complicity from UN institutions. You mentioned the example of the Al-Ahri hospital. I want to give you an example of just how little accountability there is for Hamas's lies, and what we're dealing with, on October 7th, the Dean of St. George's in Jerusalem blood libelously claimed that the Al-Ahli Hospital had taken a direct hit from an Israeli missile. Not reportedly, a tweet, our hospital has taken a direct hit from an Israeli missile. On the 12th of November, he then tweeted that the hospital was fully operational. We've just received news that our Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza City is the only hospital in the northern zone able to operate fully. Not only nowhere in the middle does he explain that it wasn't Israel. At no point does he explain, forgive me for the New Testament reference here, how that hospital did a Lazarus and suddenly came back to life, having been hit by an Israeli missile. Suddenly it was resurrected from the dead, right? You had a whole, a whole hospital that did a triad metim there. There is no accountability for Hamas's lies, for Hamas's propaganda. And what we are trying to do is not to be on the defensive. We cannot afford to be on the defensive, constantly trying to explain what Israel is doing. We're taking the fight to the people who are not holding Hamas accountable and are complicit with Hamas and demanding answers from them and saying, you are part of Hamas's propaganda war. I don't have a case that I need to answer. You have a case that you need to answer because you're complicit with this army of terrorists war of propaganda. Okay, then Elon, what do you do in a situation when Israel does make a mistake? Meaning, 
there's a fog of war. And although in that situation, thankfully, Israel was not responsible, it could have been in another situation that Israel will be responsible, as we all see, when you're dealing with a terrorist entity which is embedded in a civilian population, inevitably, mistakes will happen. That is not an indictment of Israel. It's absolutely an indictment of Hamas who created that situation. And still, it is a mistake on Israel's part. How do you respond when Israel does something which was a mistake, when a target which wasn't supposed to be hit, Chas v'shalom, actually is hit in the end, and innocent people die, and you can trace it to Israel? What would you respond to something like that? If we make mistakes, we have to be transparent and set the record straight. I can tell you just this week, in an interview with Piers Morgan in London, I made a factual mistake on air, and I had to set the record and make an apology. Uh, I accidentally said that 85% of Palestinians support Hamas's October 7th atrocities. That was a mistake. I misspoke. According to the polling evidence, only 75% of Palestinians support Hamas's October 7th atrocities. Another 10% were only indifferent to those acts of beheadings, burnings, and rape on October 7th. So I issued a statement on Twitter saying I misspoke. It wasn't 85%, it was 75%. And to the 10% who are only indifferent to those uh, atrocities, I apologize. Uh, Obviously, that was slightly tongue-in-cheek. Yes. But uh, I made a mistake on air and have to set the record uh, set the record straight. Uh, we are dealing with the fog of war. Things become clear during the fog of war, after the fog of war. But Israel's credibility is very important because we are held to a different standard from Hamas as it should be because we are a democratic state. Obviously, we expect Hamas to be held to a higher standard as well. And one of the things I have to keep telling reporters is, listen, you keep saying Hamas denied this, Hamas denied this, or according to the Hamas-run health ministry, Hamas is the terror organization that on October 7th burned, beheaded, and abducted civilians and then lied about it to you, and they continue to lie to you. So what evidentiary value does their denial or their next press release have? You are a journalist. You have sources. If your sources lie to you and you have reported that they have lied to you, why do you continue to parrot their lies? Because they're not a credible source of information. And as we fight that, obviously, we have to be a credible source of information. And that's why accuracy sometimes comes at the expense of speed. And with that Al-Ahri hospital, uh, Sham, Israel had to check the facts before we could simply put out a knee-jerk reaction, because obviously we did not launch an airstrike on a hospital. Obviously, that is not something we do. But you have to be 100% that there wasn't some sort of accident in this particular incident, because otherwise your reputation is shot. Uh, And as a democratic country, our reputation and our credibility is everything. Okay, so let me ask you about that Piers Morgan interview also, because I know that you and he got into a bit of a tussle about how many civilians slash terrorists Israel has killed. And he kept on harping on a particular point about how can you possibly know? And you kept on saying, obviously, no one can know. You did that very, very effectively. It was really a bizarre gotcha moment to try to to 
imagine that in the fog of war, any military spokesman has a bean counter saying exactly how many terrorists were killed. And as I told him in that interview, you know, your grandfather was a war hero for fighting the Japanese in Burma. He didn't have a running tally of how many terrorists he'd killed. Your brother was a war hero for fighting the Taliban in Afghanistan. He didn't know how many terrorists he'd killed. And if any journalist had gone to your grandfather, I didn't say this, but this was, you know, if you hadn't cut me off, if any journalist had gone to your grandfather while he was fighting in the jungles of Burma and put out a, a tweet slamming him for not knowing exactly how many terrorists he'd killed in re real time, you would have said that that journalist was not worth his salt. That's not a gotcha moment. That's just not how the fog of war works. The correct answer for how many Hamas terrorists we've killed is lots, and there will be many more. So I want to ask you about gotcha moments in general, because some of these gotcha moments are as in this case, bizarre. I'll give another example. After Ehud Barak, the former prime minister, was interviewed, and he said that Israel had built the basement of the Al-Shifa hospital, which is not a problem. Hamas took it over and then it was expanded worse. it. Mr. Barak, for whom English is not his first language, said bunker. He meant to say basement, but he said bunker, and that triggered a wave of fake news on social media, as if Israel was somehow responsible for the Hamas's abuse of the basement in the Shifa hospital. And as I but that's said, what I don't understand. In these gotcha moments, the issue is it's not even a gotcha moment. Even if it were a bunker, it doesn't, I, I don't understand exactly, the logic. Exactly, because every hospital has a basement. The question is what you use it for. Uh, the question is whether you're using it for, to put the baby incubators like they do in the Barzilai hospital, or you're using it to store rockets and leach electricity from the hospital for a terrorist command center. So oh, I tweeted this. I don't think the fact that Israel helped the Palestinians build a hospital in the 1980s is the gotcha moment you think it is. And even worse than that, Israeli engineers and architects also helped to build Entebbe Airport. Part of the reason that Israel's rescue operation in 1977 Operation Thunderbolt was so successful was because we had the blueprints of the Entebbe airport that we had helped to build. And Palestinian terrorists have a long and consistent MO of exploiting civilian infrastructure and hijacking it for terrorist purposes. So people going around and saying, haha, Israel built a basement uh, in the Shifa hospital, and somehow then extrapolating that and saying, oh, therefore Israel must have built the whole tunnel network underneath and is responsible for what Hamas is doing with the tunnel network that was built years after the Israeli evacuation. Bizarre, but it just shows you how difficult it is for many people to believe the truth and how they try to grab onto facts and fake facts and try to forcibly shove them into a story that doesn't make sense in the beginning anyway. Exactly. I know your time is valuable. I have a question which is very important to me, though. I want to ask you as well. When Israeli politicians, and I don't want to speak about politics, I'm not asking about your personal position over here, but when politicians say something which is perhaps inappropriate or something which you don't agree with, I'll give you an example that I didn't agree with. There was a member of Knesset who said or suggested that it was possible to nuke Gaza if it should come to that. Whether he meant it or not is completely irrelevant. He said this. At that time, I tweeted how awful this was. And someone said to me, in fact, several people said to me, no, 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 you cannot do that. You as someone who's trying to defend Israel, Scott Kahn, you should not even talk about it. Essentially, even if you don't agree with it, pretend it didn't happen because you're just giving people bad news about Israel and making Israel look bad. My response was, it's going to come out. We can't deny it. Either we get in front of it and acknowledge it and say, this is not how we believe. This was a misspoken statement or a wrong statement, which we don't accept in Israel, or they're going to do it for us. 
I'm curious how you can answer that as a spokesperson. What do you think you should do? Should you try to push those aside and ignore them, as some people suggest? Or do you get in front of it and acknowledge it and say, we don't go there? First of all, you weren't the only one. The prime minister also put out a statement saying that Minister Eliyahu's outrageous remarks were disconnected from reality, had no basis in reality. Uh, and it's uh, important that that clarification came out. We are, of course, still a democratic country with a rambunctious and lively uh, public sphere, including a political sphere, and politicians are free to say whatever they want. At the end of the day, my job is to explain the official positions and decisions of the Israeli government, a government that is now focusing on fighting a war and winning a war. And it is those decisions of the war cabinet that I'm responsible for putting forth to the world and explaining why we are fighting this war with Hamas and obviously not responding to everything that comes to mind from every tweet from uh, any particular politician. That's just not, not part of the job description and not part of what I'm doing. Okay, Elon, one final question. If people listening right now want a quick tip off the top of your head, something which they should know when they are defending Israel, whether it's online or whether in person, what would you tell people listening? What's the most important thing to know when defending Israel, when people come at you with accusations? What would you tell people? I'll give you the one line soundbite that I've repeated ad nauseum that is not obvious to people around the world, but is obvious to Israelis and bears mentioning. This is not a war that Israel started. This is not a war that Israel wanted. This is not even a war that Israel expected. This is a war that Hamas declared on Israel with the October 7th massacre, the deadliest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. And it is a war that we have to win because the consequences of inaction will be even more severe. We do not want this war. We are trying to end this war, but we are trying to end this war in a way that ensures we get our hostages back and that Hamas can never attack us again, because we don't have the luxury of suspending the job in the middle. And then from a thousand miles away saying, we won't be personally affected if everything goes belly up. We have skin in the game. We are going to suffer if and when Hamas attacks us again, like it is promising to do. And that's why we have no choice now, but to fight to the end, the October 7th massacre was the straw that broke the back of a very strong camel. Enough is enough. This time it ends. This time we win. Hey, Lil Navy, I really appreciate your time and all that you're doing for the state of Israel and for all of us. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Keep safe. Rabbi Pesach Wiliki, thank you very much for joining me again on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Great to be here, Scott. Thank you. Now, you've become, Pesach, one of Israel's foremost spokespersons in the American Christian world. You've started appearing regularly on Christian media. In fact, when I called you up to ask you if you would do this with me, you're in the car on your way back from Christian Broadcasting Network, CBN Studios in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. So obviously, this is something you're doing very often right now. You told me in private conversation that you feel fortunate and that you have found exactly what you're supposed to do. And you feel that unlike a lot of people who aren't sure what they're supposed to be doing while this war is raging, you have found your calling, so to speak. Can you articulate what that calling is? Sure. People our age, you know, when I say our age, you, you and me, Scott, we're both in our mid fifties. I have kids fighting in the war and so many people they're you know, they're davening, they're anxious, they're, they're reading the headlines, they're wondering how they can get active. People who have financial means are, are donating to things. And because of my career, because of what I've been doing, which has not really been political, I've been involved 
in Jewish Christian relations, a lot of it on the academic side of things, but also with church leadership. Over the years, I've developed a lot of contacts, and I know people in in Christian leadership, including in Christian media. As soon as the war broke out on October 7th, I started getting contacted by various Christian media, whether it's uh, primetime cable news shows or nationally syndicated radio shows, all reaching out to me looking for my take on the war because I was their contact. And as soon as that started, I realized that this is a very important role to play because Christians, like Orthodox Jews, interpret political events not only politically, but also look inside themselves and ask themselves, what does this mean for me spiritually? What does this mean in the bigger picture of God's plan? Now, for Jews, obviously, this is an existential threat and we're fighting a war, so we don't necessarily have the luxury to think about those things so much. But for Christians, they're trying to understand what it all means. And when I started talking about the war on Christian media, I realized that this was even more important than I thought it was, because our thought would have been, based on the last 40 years of the of the growth of Christian Zionism, that there would be this immediate outcry and, you know, throngs in the streets of Christians. And it wasn't like that. It's really taken the Christian world some time to wake up, and they really needed this to be framed and explained to them in a way that they understand the importance uh, and the relevance of what's going on. So, yeah, it, it, I find it, it's gratifying to me. And what I said to you in that private conversation that I feel that it's gratifying is that I don't have that same type of anxiety, uh, you know, day by day because I have a task. I know what I'm supposed to be doing and I have to be responding and I have to be, I'm getting interviewed and I'm preparing my talking points. I'm also brushing up on a lot of Hasbara because Hasbara and, you know, explaining Israel ha- you know, politically, militarily, these types of things hasn't really been my wheelhouse. Although, Scott, as you know, I am privately quite a political wonk. I follow stuff very closely, but it hasn't really been part of my professional life. So with this war and Christians looking for someone who could give answers about how to view this spiritually, but also can speak to the questions of what's going on politically and in terms of security, this has become a very central part of my life since October 7th. That actually raises a question which I don't really understand, because if the main thing you're doing is helping Christians frame this spiritually, I'm surprised they would want an Orthodox rabbi to do that for them rather than a pastor or somebody from within the Christian tradition. So why are you the one, someone who's not Christian, clearly telling them what Christians should believe about this? Wouldn't they want to go to one of their own? (laughs) That's a great question, Scott. And it's a question that really relates to—you could ask it more broadly about everything that I do. Uh, why on earth would a church want a, a a rabbi who doesn't believe in Jesus, who's from a different faith tradition, come into their church and teach a passage from the Bible according to the Jewish understanding? You know, you might like, why would they do that? Why not just bring in a Christian well, scholar? I think that might be different, and I can explain why also. Go ahead. As someone who's not involved in that work at all, I would say, well, you have access to the Hebrew original. You have access to an interpretive tradition that they don't. So when it comes to Bible study, they're seeing it through your different eyes to get different perspectives they may not have gained. Here, you are telling them what to believe. Great. I'm happy you put it that way because there is another piece of why, even on the biblical side, why they want to hear from a rabbi. And this is something that Jews don't quite get, which is that in the Jewish Christian relationship, and when Christians want to be involved in Israel, they're interested in the Jewish roots of their Christianity. The type of Christians who are engaged in the relationship with Jews, which again, the political expression of it is support for Israel, but it's much broader and much deeper. It's a much more comprehensive shift in worldview than meets the eye. 
So when you get beyond the political, what they're really interested in is they see a certain authenticity and authority, not only to the fact that we have the Hebrew and we have this historical scholarly tradition, but they see this authority and this authenticity of being the source, being the root, being the people. We are the chosen people. We are the epicenter and they revolve around us or they connect to us. Uh, in the theology, in the non-supersessionist theology that is growing in popularity in the evangelical world, the Jewish people aren't just the chosen people of God, but as you know, the New Testament says that salvation is of the Jews. The gifts and calling of the Jewish people are irrevocable. Paul in Romans uses this this analogy, this muscle of telling Christians that the Jews are the are the olive tree, and Christians and Gentile Christians are a grafted broken branch that is grafted onto the olive tree. And he warns them. He says, "Remember that the the broken branches." are nurtured by the root. The root is not nurtured by the broken branches, and he warns them not to be boastful, you know, as branches over the root. This whole complicated muscle is a way of framing the relationship with the Jews. So for Christians, being connected to Israel in some way, now, you know, again, for centuries, that meant replacing Israel. But in this non-replacement theology view of things, the connection, it doesn't mean there's no connection to Israel if you're not replacing us. It means that you're connecting to Israel that the Jewish people are are the authentic source. So this this blessing Israel is it goes beyond you know uh, Genesis twelve. If I you know I'll bless those who bless you. It has to do with you know with also the Nevuahs and Zechariah that talk about you know and, and we kind of scratch our heads at these Nevuahs like Christians grabbing onto the tzitzis of Jews as some sort of muscle of accompanying us and being part of what's happening to us. So they they see a certain authenticity. Now I, I think a lot of this is subconscious when they say okay they want a rabbi to talk about it. Now honestly there's also the human interest side of it, that if they have me on as a rabbi who lives in Israel, who has children in combat units, it's a much better personal connection, personal tug to the, you know, to the whole situation. So there's probably a lot of pieces of it. I haven't really psychoanalyzed them. Let's go on to that concept of Hasbara, the idea of explaining Israel's cause to the outside world. And given that you've appeared on Christian television, Christian radio, I know that on many other news programs outside the Christian world, we see this tremendous amount very often of anti-Israel bias. It's become notorious. We see it on networks like the BBC and Sky News in particular, but on American networks as well, where assumptions are played about what Israel is doing, which are unfounded, and which we, coming from the Israeli community, are very frustrated by just to deal with this. These are some of the things I spoke to just a few moments ago with Elon. I'm wondering, are those same biases present in your context in the Christian networks? Absolutely not. In fact, if anything, there's a pro-Israel bias to the Christian networks. And I should also add that there's probably a lot of, uh, a lot of your listeners who, are, who would never dream of watching Christian news networks or would view them kind of in a kind of you know, outsider, voyeuristic fashion, like, oh, look at what the Christians are doing. And the truth is these networks do have a lot of faith programming, and that's the stereotype. You're flipping channels and you see some preacher. But more and more, the major Christian networks, I'll refer to specifically two of them, which are sort of top shelf, which are TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network, which is the biggest, uh, and CBN. But there's also other networks like Victory News, and uh, there's a number of these networks have really pivoted more towards real news programming. And it's not shallow, and it's not weak news programming. The reporting is very good. I rely for kind of good, comprehensive daily reports on what's going on in Israel, not only on the Israeli media, but to understand you know, good messaging and, and, and good, well-sourced reporting, I watch the broadcasts of Eric Stackelbeck from Trinity Broadcast Network. He's a Christian, 
and he's just a fantastic reporter. He knows his stuff. He's well plugged into what's going on in Israel. He's well plugged into the security establishment. I would highly recommend to anyone. And there's no there's no Jesus stuff. He's not preaching or anything. It's just straight up news. So these networks have really have really pivoted towards a lot of news, and their their coverage of Israel is comprehensive, and decidedly pro-Israel. That's good to hear. When you speak to these networks, when you speak to people in the Christian broadcasting world and even outside the broadcasting world, Pesach, what are some of the most important messages that you try to convey about Israel? I don't have to be fighting the usual Hasbara wars for the reasons that I just stated. I'm not dealing with people who are believing mainstream media narratives so much. I mean, they do have questions. They want to understand the whole issue of civilian casualties, for example. Uh, you know, who's responsible for them and how does that work? Uh, they they, they want to understand you know, what's this about a Palestinian claim to the land? Did we come in and displace another nation? Because they don't, they do, they're not necessarily well informed. They have a biblical faith and they support Israel and, the, and, the, and they also know to be skeptical of mainstream media narratives. So it's not the same kind of battle where you're kind of, you know, pushing back on, on, uh, on, on disinformation so much as it's really just informing people of, of the actual facts. But there's something much deeper, something more important that I'm driving at in all of my hits on, on Christian media, which is to reframe what's going on in Israel as something that should be of concern to them beyond the fact that they're rooting for the Jews and supporting Israel and waving an Israeli flag. But they should see this as their war. And I go about this in a number of ways. Politically, if you want to frame something as someone else's battle, and you might have seen some of this type of Hasbara saying, oh, Hamas is not just after Israel, they're also after America, or people talking about, you know, a, a Islamic terrorists coming across the southern border. I don't really go that route. But that's really what, what's behind that. People want to frame the conflict in a way that should matter to the person they're talking to on a personal level. But for me, I do that from the biblical perspective, where I say to people, look, you believe in the Bible. You believe that the ingathering of the nation of Israel to the land of Israel today is a fulfillment of the long-awaited ingathering that is foretold in the Bible. Today, we have nations that are standing against us who are trying to undo that. They're trying to prevent the fulfillment of those prophecies. Our enemies don't necessarily say, I want to stand against the fulfillment of God's prophecy, but that's essentially what they're doing. If we as Jews believe that this is Reshit Smichat Gulatenu, that this is the foretold, when we read the Psukim in Dvarim that say that even if you are scattered to the ends of the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you back and bring you to the land of your forefathers, and you will take possession of it, and you will become more numerous and more prosperous than their ancestors. And we read that, and it's part of the Tefillah Shlom Amdina, the prayer for the state of Israel. And we believe, as religious Zionists, that this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, Christians see it the same way, too. So what, that, what I then do is I, I frame it in the sense that when you look in, say, for Zechariah and in, and in Yeshaya and in other books, where you see the, the nevuahs, the prophecies about the ingathering of Israel, there's also other nations who rise up against us to prevent it, but there are also those among the nations who stand with us, who join us in the fight. And this is right there in the Psukim. So I quote from there a fair amount. But what I try to frame for Christians is all these years that you've waved an Israeli flag and stood in your church or at Christians United for Israel events and said you stand with Israel or you gave money to the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews because you stand with Israel, that was all preparation for this. This is the moment. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is what it really means to stand with Israel. And one of the lines I use is I'll say to them, look, the people who are trying to destroy Israel, the people who are screaming from the river to the sea, are trying to prevent 
all those things that we praise God for of the fulfillment of prophecy. So you're defending the Bible when you defend Israel. But there's also another angle to this, which isn't quite biblical, but it's sort of cultural political, which is Christians, especially in the West, that's who I'm talking to mostly, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, there's other Christians in the world besides Western Christians that I'm, that I'm involved with. But for Christians in the West, they feel very much under attack, and rightly so, by the combination of progressive left ideology and, and political power and institutional takeover. They feel very much under attack by that in their society. And they also feel threatened by, by Islam. There's persecution of Christians all over the Middle East and all over Africa by radical Muslims who have the exact same Muslim Brotherhood ideology as Hamas does. So Christians, it's easy for them to identify that the, the twin enemies of progressive left who scream from the river to the sea on their college campuses and Islamists who have somehow oddly joined forces right now, even though their ideologies are extremely different from each other, topic for another time. So framing it as your enemies are our enemies, the people we're fighting and the people who are opposed to us are the same people who hate you. And it's for the exact same reason. This isn't intersectionality of, of I'm a victim and you're a victim. This is something much more fundamental. It's that the hatred is identical. We are the same enemy to our enemies. And therefore, we have to see this as our fight. Okay, then that leads me to all sorts of other questions. Let me preface it by saying this. I haven't left Israel since the war started. Some people who have left Israel have told me, and I've heard this over and over, and it seems to be true just from what I've intuited by looking online. People will say that people aren't coming up publicly and screaming with an Israeli flag in the same way that the pro-Palestinian demonstrators are going up in the thousands and the hundreds of thousands, claiming from the river to the sea and doing all sorts of stuff. But they will go to a Jew who is identifiably a Jew wearing a kippah privately and say, look, I'm with you, man, that sort of thing. But in public, it's quiet. There's a lot of support for Israel, in other words, which is emotional. It's there, but it's not being expressed in a million-person march on Washington, D.C., or in waving flags in downtown Dallas or anywhere else like that, at least from what I've seen. So my question for you, number one, is, if that is true, why is that true? And number two, what do you mean when you say, this is your fight too, giving money to Kufi is very nice, but now it's time to really fight. Well, what do you have in mind? Because it doesn't seem like that's happening from what I see. Okay. So first of all, your perception is largely true and it's very disappointing. It's so disappointing to the point of, I would say, being surprising. One would think with all of the uh, organizations like Christians United, especially Christians United for Israel, which is a, an organization that's been around for a while and boasts millions and millions of members and uh, is all about standing with Israel and defending Israel. Where are the mass protests in every state? Uh, that's a great question. There have been some. Uh, there's been a few standout communities among the Christians who have had good public protests. There was one in Nashville, Tennessee, right near the beginning of the war, which had thousands uh, and there's been a number of events. It's interesting you mentioned Dallas. Dallas has actually been one of the bright spots uh, in terms of in terms of Christians coming out. But for the most part, you're absolutely correct. So I'll tell this to you from my own narrative perspective, because because I'm so uh, integrated into this world, I was taken aback by the lack of activity myself when the war started. And as I've kind of gotten my arms around it and gotten to be able to understand it a little more, here's how I understand it. First of all, I'm just going to say quite frankly, 
Christians United for Israel as an organization, and, and Jews have heard of it because they've heard of Pastor Hagee, or they just hear these broad strokes like, oh, there's this big organization, there's millions of Christians. It's a big organization that's been around a while, and it's gone through some leadership changes. And frankly, there's a lot of disillusionment right now since the war started among Christian leadership with that particular organization. I don't know how comfortable you are, Scott, and what will remain unedited or edited on this podcast, but I will say that when I say I have conversations with Christian leaders, I, I just want to be frank, because again, Jew, this is so off the radar for Jews. I'm talking about conversations I've had with top public figures in the Christian world, both politically and in terms of faith leaders, people right at the top of their world, very prominent people and people in media as well, who are one by one are expressing their disillusionment with Christians United for Israel. It's a sad thing to say. Pastor Hagee's a great man. He's, a, he's one of the greatest spokesmen on behalf of Israel, and he has transformed many, many Christians in their thinking about Israel for the better over the course of his career. He's in his mid-80s. He's not that involved. And unfortunately, their organization has not stepped up. And that's part of the problem. And here my criticism of them might get even harsher, which is because they've existed all these years and because most evangelical Christians, especially pretty much all evangelical Christians who are pro-Israel, know about Christians United for Israel, there was this kind of assumption that the big advocacy organization, the big mobilization organization is there. Someone's taking care of it. And when push comes to shove and nothing's happening, people are like, wait, what? Why isn't anything happening? You know, it was what should have happened. What should have happened? Christians United for Israel has state directors in every state ostensibly. They have, a, they have representatives in, in different states, leadership people who affiliate with them. One would have expected that as soon as this war broke out, those people would have gone right into action and planned events in public in all these different cities. And these things were simply not happening. And it's caused a lot of confusion for people, a lot of disillusionment, I should say, uh, about that particular organization. So that's, that's a problem. Meaning had Kufi not existed, something more effective might have been created at either at local levels or nationally. And in fact, when I mentioned, let's say, the Nashville uh, demonstration, the Nashville demonstration happened because there's a local Christian Zionist presence that is unaffiliated with Christians United for Israel who just immediately took the bull by the horns and went forward and put up a big event. It's an example. And there's other, there's other cities like that, but that's as an example. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is that Christians are slow to mobilize. And this is a problem in, of their community. When they mobilize, they mobilize big, but they're slow to mobilize. And if you think about other political issues that have gone on in America, you don't often see Christians taking to the streets. Their strength isn't in urban centers, and that's just not how they do political activism. They'll do grand rallies that, that are planned for a year out, things like the March for Life in Washington and things like that, but that's not what we're talking about. Our enemies were in the street immediately. On October 8th, on October 8th, there was a mass rally in Times Square of, 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 of pro-Hamas a demonstration, and it was well organized and it was paid for. It wasn't a spontaneous taking to the streets. We know now that there were actually there was actually big funding behind it that came in immediately on October 7th, and the left-wing activists got out there. They're organized. The Christian world is not organized, and it takes time to mobilize them, and there's a lot of different leadership people to pull together. There were a lot of people who were kind of taken by surprise and were waiting for someone to take the lead, and uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen in such a nimble fashion then what do you want them to do? Given that you know this about them, which is that 
by and large, the community is slow to organize, that Kufai, Christians United for Israel, is not doing anything. So when you tell them this is your fight, what do you expect them to do? So one of the things that I did, or I should say we did, because I've been working with the team at Israel 365, and if uh, any of your listeners don't know who they are, it's a bunch of from guys, rabbis, uh, you know, living in Yerushalayim area and Beit Shemesh, led by Tuli Weiss and Rabbi Eli Michel, who started a media company. And it's media and it's charity. It's all Israel stuff. And they have uh, quite a following, quite an audience in the Christian world. And I've been involved with them in creating content, writing columns for them, writing a Parsha column for Christians, things like that. But once the war started, we all kind of kicked into political activism gear and started putting out Hasbara for Christians. But we also created... I wouldn't call it a new entity because we're not building an organization, but we created a way for Christians to engage. We created a website called Israel365Action.com, and in every public appearance I make, whether it's a radio show or a, or a, or a major podcast or a TV show, I push Christians to go to Israel365Action.com and just put their email address in. We tell them we're not going to ask you for money. What we just want is for you to be engaged. And we've already, and we immediately got a huge response because, again, this was on some major TV shows, major primetime shows that have millions of viewers. So we immediately galvanized a large group of grassroots activists. And when they put their email address in, and this is for Jews too, it is not being framed as a Christian thing, but our main audience is Christian. There's a lot of Jews in this as well. And we, and we actually would like it to be just not about what faith you are. It's basically an activism email alert list. And every few days, we send out an action alert. And the action alert might involve um, raising awareness about some pro-Hamas activity that's taking place somewhere. And if people have the opportunity to try to scuttle it, they can do that. It might be something to call their congressman and senator about. It might just be uh, information about a webinar that's coming up or sending them out good Hasbara information or articles for them to read. It's keeping them engaged and informed about what's going on. And if anything, if there's any action item or if there's, you know, if there's events, if there's a rally going on somewhere, there'll be information about it. And down the road, we see this as something that is not going to just be for the war. And that's why we gave it this. We built a website and gave it a name. We realize how needed it is. And when I say we're not building an organization, because it's kind of an old fashioned model, the way we're looking at this is that we just want people to be engaged. And the best way to keep people engaged in this day and age is actually through media personalities, through being out there. The best way to communicate to your troops is not to build an organization and, and, and then send them emails, even though we are sending out emails. The best way is to have a presence in media and be someone that people relate to and connect to and see and can, and the message can get out. So getting out there in Christian media and, and raising awareness and getting people more engaged is part of the strategy. Well, let me ask you about that then. It does sound a little bit circular, if I'm understanding correctly. It's like your media hits are, we need you to be involved. This is your fight. You've got to fight. What does fighting mean? Go to the website and get my emails and hear more of me. No. So please explain. What am I missing? This is all brand new, Scott. We just put this together over the, I mean, the, the war just started. Everyone's taken by surprise and we just built this. And now we're starting to get the people in. As we get more and more people in this, we're going to begin putting out toolkits for people, how to put together a local rally, giving them the ability, you know, giving them the tools that they need and the support that they need to get a rally together, connecting them with political leaders locally because we have political connections. Because again, between all of us, we're connected at the highest levels, at the most prominent levels in the Christian world. So people need speakers or they need, uh, you know, for a rally, we're going to help them with that. And we've already done a number of events, even before we had a name for this thing. We've already done a number of events and we're going to start having regular events for Israel and we're going to run campaigns. 
Uh, so for example, one campaign that we're going to be running down in the future, we're looking downrange and, and listening to the language coming out of the Biden administration and the mainstream media and the UN. It seems that the whole world is licking their chops, getting ready to try to force a, a two-state solution on Israel again uh, when this war is over. So one of the things that we're looking downrange to do is to create a messaging and a movement within the Christian world to be opposed to the two-state solution, which is something that neither Israelis nor Palestinians want overwhelmingly. It has no support here. The, the way they're going about it by bringing the Qataris in and, and trying to resurrect Mahmoud Abbas's Palestinian authority that, that whose who's, uh, approval rating among Palestinians is in the teens, all the reasons to reject the two-state solution. As an example, that's a campaign that we're planning and we're going to be, we're going to be moving forward with. But, but uh, it's slow moving. The Christian world takes a while to mobilize takes a lot of communication with their leaders and getting people to be on the same page and to back things. But I'll say something more basic. One of my messages to Christians, one of the drums I've been beating for the last few weeks is essentially stop telling me that you had a prayer service in your church for Israel. I'm very happy you did that, but it doesn't really do anything. Do the same prayer service for Israel in front of town hall in your local town or do it at the local state house. Make sure that the TV cameras from the local news are there. There isn't a kind of tradition of, of activism. You know, Jew, the Jewish community, we've always had Israel on, our, on the top of our minds, and, and the Jewish community is kind of built for activism. We're very well galvanized. We spring into action quickly. We have the history of things like the Soviet Jewry movement that trained our whole culture. They don't have a culture of activism in the same way. Basically, it's a complicated answer to your question about why these things haven't been happening, but what we realize is we need to have some something that works long term so that there can be marching orders given to an army of activists that are so disparate. Uh, because, again, their strength is not in urban centers. Their strength is more in the fact that they have broad numbers, which is something that the Jewish community doesn't have. OK, Pesach, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you two quick questions, which hopefully can help people listening. We are talking about Hasbara. The first one is... Could you please tell me what some of the most common misconceptions about Israel are in the Christian community? You already mentioned questions about civilian casualties and about displacing the Palestinians. What other issues come up often that our listeners need to overcome should they be in conversation with Christians? And the second thing is, if one of our listeners is in conversation with somebody in the Christian world, what would you tell him to emphasize? I'm going to answer the second question first in terms of what I would tell people to emphasize. And when you're talking to Christians, first of all, emphasize your own personal connection to what's going on. Whatever relatives you have who are in Israel or who are serving in the army, tell them. That that grabs them immediately. No matter what they ask you about the war, say, first of all, let me just tell you, my nephew serves in a combat unit. Please pray for him. That immediately will draw them in, and, and you'll find it's very powerful. Jews don't realize how... Most Christians in America don't know a single Jew. Because Jews, especially Orthodox Jews, which is most of your listenership, live in concentrated urban centers because of the nature of our lives, we have this illusion that there's more of us than we are because in wherever we are, there's, there's, a, there's a critical mass of us. But in the vast majority... Anywhere of, Jews uh, go, there's a community there. Right. Mo in most of America, even, even when you go into the wrong suburb of those same urban centers, they don't know a single Jew. So even if they have their pro-Israel belief system that comes from their church and, and, they, and, and watching CBN and TBN or whatever, 
They don't have any personal connection. And you'll be surprised, even by just meeting you and you mentioning your own personal connection to the war, you'll find people following up with you. They'll follow up a week or two later and say, by the way, I want you to know I've been praying for your nephew. You know, and how's your nephew doing? And like these things will happen because suddenly they're drawn in. They have this personal connection. And I have this with entire churches. There's like, a, you know, there's like a church in Arkansas. I'm the only Jew to ever walk into this small town in Arkansas, this nice sized Baptist church. And uh, I've spoken there a number of times. This community, I'm the person from Israel. I'm the Jew they know. So I got this whole, you know, and, and, and when they reach out to me and tell me they're praying for Israel, they also mention that they're praying for my children who are fighting and they ask me how my children are doing. It, it provides this personal connection. It's very important. So that would be the first thing I, I, would, I would tell anyone. Now, in terms of misconceptions, the challenge with Christians, again, it's not the same Hasbara problem. It's not really a problem of misconceptions. Of course, there are people on the right. There are people in the Christian world who are anti-Israel, but they're, they're, I'm generally not interacting with them and they're the minority. The greatest evidence of that is what I said about their media. You look at Christian media, you're not going to find anti-Israel messaging there. The Christian world is pro-Israel, so it's not so much an issue of misconceptions as an issue of it not feeling relevant to their lives. To whatever extent we can make it relevant to their lives, I guess this goes back to what I just said about drawing them into a personal connection, but that also goes into drawing into the biblical connection, reminding them if, you know, for someone, you're not me who's messaging to Christians all the time. You're just having a conversation with with a Christian and they ask you for your thoughts about what's going on in Israel. Just say to them, look, the people we're fighting are the enemies of Western civilization. They hate Christianity as much as they hate Judaism. We're all in this together. Just say that. That's really the message Christians need to hear, and that's the message I try to get across to them. Let me just uh, end by pointing something out. I-, I teased it earlier. I mentioned that there's Christians outside of America. I just want to tell you about an event that took place yesterday. I'm connected with the leadership of the African Evangelical Church, which is which is huge. Uh, I don't know if people realize how many evangelical Christians there are in places like Nigeria and other hugely populated countries in Africa. There's hundreds of millions of evangelical Christians in Africa and African expats who live in other countries who still affiliate with the churches in Africa. And they're a little bit off people's radar, but I I have good relationships with their leadership. And we put together a global day of prayer for Israel, for the global African church. It was a 12-hour event that went continuously moving from country to country as the staging ground of this event that was done on this platform. They do global events all the time. There were millions of Christians who participated in it, African Christians and leaders. The first hour of it was led by me broadcasting from Jerusalem. I brought on a member of Knesset. I brought on a a couple other speakers. I shared some thoughts. And then for the next 11 hours after that, there was uh, there was millions of African Christians who were speaking about Israel, praying for Israel and through building this this event, I also have deepened my relationship with their leadership, who I now meet with on a semi-regular basis to talk, to answer their questions about the war and give them talking points. So there's a lot going on uh, behind the scenes. And I also, I should add that people should not lose heart by thinking that we're losing the Hasbara war so badly. When you watch media, let's remember that the mainstream media today is not the mainstream media of decades ago. There is a very strong slant in agenda. And when you look at the current U.S. administration and the way they're pressuring Israel, and you look at the way the media is amplifying the anti-Israel protests, you could get the impression that the world is against us. But I, I really believe, and polling shows it, that the vast majority of Americans and the vast majority of people in the West are behind Israel, but they're not going out into the street. 
So we shouldn't lose heart. I think we can turn this thing around, you know, on a Hasbara level. And I think we're actually doing better than we realize. Well, thank you for that encouraging note at the end. Rabbi Pesach, well, looky, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.